When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A word of warning. This podcast contains discussions that some listeners may find distressing or triggering. Please use your discretion. And welcome to Reclaim Me. My name is Madeline Heather, and I am so blessed to be welcoming back a very special guest, Kathy Oddie, for part two of her story. So we're just going to pick right back up where we left off. So Thanks, Kathy. In that instance, it actually it. felt like it had ended relatively amicably, or so I thought, um, because a week later, well, that's the point that I started to become aware of it. Um, he actively started stalking and harassing me. And that continued for 10 years. Oh, my word. So when you say stalking and harassing, you're like you're out with friends and he just rocks up there or he's leaving things at your residence and stuff like that? So at this stage um, in my new house, because of the fact that I'm, you know, feeling concerned about my own safety because of him, and it just happened to be at my dad's farm that I grew up on, um, there had been a litter of Kelpie puppies and dad needed to find a home for them. And I just thought, you know what, I wouldn't normally take on a, um, a working dog into the city, but in this situation, I know this is a dog that's going to be so loved. I'll make sure it gets plenty of walks and it'll give me the safety I need. So in the stalking side of it, he would turn up at the dog park. Um, he would um, cut the clothes on my clothesline because the clothesline, um, how it was at that point, was my um, car port area sort of had the driveway onto the street but at the end of the driveway was the clothesline so anyone could walk up to it um, off the street and things like that there would be multiple hang-up phone calls abusive text messages yet turning up to my workplace going to places um, where I'd be with friends and um, so it would have been about two years post that relationship finally ending when it was a day where the harassment was just next level um, 
you've just been bombarding me with messages and people might ask, why didn't you just change your phone number? And I know that might seem like, and honestly, I probably should have, but in at that point in my life, um, it was for me one thing that I still had control over. He had affected so many points of my life. I was like, no, I want to feel like I can hold on to this number. And I know it seems like a ridiculous, trivial little thing, um, but it was something that I had agency and choice over and I, I didn't want to change it. And yeah. so... And it shouldn't be the question of what do you need to change to stop um, yourself from getting stalked. That shouldn't be the question. The question is why the fuck is this man stalking you? Exactly. And and what is the risk to your safety? They, they should be the questions being asked, not what can you do to stop it? Absolutely. So this day, uh, look, I reckon he would have throughout the day been sending me about 50 messages. I ended up contacting my older brother who by this stage, thank God, was not in hospital. Um and I'm so glad. Yeah, <laughs> I know it was a really bad couple of years there for him. And I also have to highlight that after that first time I rang the police, I did not call the police again for many years or go to the police station because what he actually did after that incident. Well, one, I returned home, and my um, the the outcome for. Um, reporting that to the police was him bashing me until I was unconscious and then subsequently on any other time that he would be abusing me he'd actually use that part of the psychological abuse because he'd be like oh you'll just ring the police won't you oh but look they didn't do anything last time so yeah go ahead so it became part of the abuse in and of itself so on this day rather than calling the police I called my brother and just said look can you please just get in touch with him and just tell him to stop? It's, I've just had enough. And so my brother did and he rings me back and he's like, do you realise he's just moved around the corner from you? And I said, no, I didn't. I said, oh, your heart must have just dropped. Oh, uh, it did. I felt so unsafe. And it also explained the messages that I'd been getting like, your lights are off, where are you, that sort of thing. Um This particular night, um, after a day of all this happening in the lead-up to me going out, it was my favourite cousin who's a few years younger than me. It was her um, birthday and we'd planned this really super special night where we were going to um, level 35 at the Sofitel to the restaurant there and getting all dressed up and I'd finally built up the confidence to start seeing a new guy um, who was this backpacker who just made me laugh and and it was a huge thing to actually just start something new and and, and allow it because I, I I hadn't up until that point. And, and you're stepping back into starting your life again, so getting back on track, getting this um, sense of self back again and doing things that you used to find really fun. Exactly. So my cousin and I went up and and because um, the, the guy was working in a bar, so we went and had a drink there and said hi to him. And um, it happened to be um, because the place it was was the Celtic Club in, in the city in Melbourne. And um, so we're chatting away to um, this guy um, who I was seeing and at the bar, um, there were um, three guys with Scottish accents and wearing um, uh, soccer jerseys of 
the teams that they supported. And I, I love my soccer, so I recognise the team. And, look, we had some brief conversation and banter because we were pretty much um, my best, my cousin and I and these guys and the guy I was seeing behind the bar um, were the only people in that side of the venue in that moment. And so didn't really think of anything. We headed off to our special um, dinner reservation. We then went out to meet um, in Collingwood, some of my cousin's friends, and at some point I got separated from her. Now, concurrently to all of this, my perpetrator is continually sending me messages and so forth throughout the night. So as my level knowing where you were or just like continually harassing just you harassing me well. like he knew I was out he knew that like it, it, it was just this continual thing and I was trying to ignore it but at the stage where I and I, I had a mobile phone by now um I, I'd lost my cousin and honestly in a normal situation that's when the homing beacon would have kicked in and I just would have got in a taxi and gone home at that point um, but I didn't feel like I could. So I took the taxi from Collingwood back to the bar where the guy I was seeing was working. Now he was busy and he was closing up. So he, the, the group of three Scottish guys were still there. So he actually said to them, look, can you, um, take her out and make sure she gets into a taxi safely home? And, I didn't have any reason not to trust these guys because I'd backpacked, I'd hung around with you know, other people from different nationalities. They presented just like when I met Perpetrator One where he just seemed so familiar in terms of our upbringings and you know, cultural backgrounds and so forth. There was no reason for me to feel a sense of danger. They just, just seemed like guys having a good night. Yeah. Yeah. So I actually was um, – out sitting in the bus stop next to um, the Celtic Club on um, Lonsdale Street there and I was just sitting there going, oh, my God, what am I going to do? I can't go home because he's going to be if there. He's going to be there. Yeah. And I have now had a few drinks. I'm not feeling like I can go there with a really clear state of mind to deal with that and I, I just don't feel safe to go home. But I'm like, where do I go in this moment? Because I can't go back into the Celtic Club because that's closing and no, he, the guy's made it clear that he's busy. Um, so when the guy, the three Scottish guys came around the corner like, can we get you a taxi? And I'm just like, well, actually... I don't really feel I can go. I can go home, and I explained the situation of what was going on. Um, and they said, "Well, we're actually heading out to another bar. You can come with us if you like." And I said, "Well, you know what? That that would be great. I'll walk with you." And um, and because I, in my mind, I was thinking, "Well, as I walk in the fresh air, I'm not drinking anymore. Um, I'll start to sort of, you know, sober up a bit. Um, I'll be able to deal with going home." We got to where. Um, the bar they intended to go to and along the way as well um, my perpetrator was calling my phone and in fact I handed my phone over to these guys and said look tell him where to go please and so they had no telling him to leave me alone and get to this bar it's closed they've got their car nearby and they're like right we're going back to the unit that we live in do you want to come with us? You can hang out there for a bit if you like. And I said, look, that would be great. I just don't feel safe to go back and, you know, that 
still wasn't feeling any risk being around them. So I did go back. Um, they handed me a Corona and honestly, I just had a sip out of it because I, I really didn't want to drink anymore. And I was so, you know, very much about not wanting to stay there. I hadn't even taken my jacket off. Um, I was just thinking, I just have to wait until I feel a bit more clear of mine and then I'm going back home. And I even had a conversation with the the guy at the the, the bar about the fact that, you know, because he was getting a bit jealous that I might be getting involved with one of these three guys and I'm just like, look, and I said this quite blatantly um, and I felt really embarrassed with myself at the time because I said it in front of them because we're all sitting in this lounge room there. And in fact, the girlfriend of one of these guys had come out from the bedroom to see what all the noise was. And um, so I'm just saying, look, I'm not interested in any of these guys. I'm interested in you. I'm just you know, hanging out here until I feel safe to go home. So they'd all heard that. And then as I reflect back on that incident, I now know what happened next was premeditated because one of the guys left because he didn't live there to go somewhere else and the guy who had the girlfriend that he was living with there said, right, we've got to go to our room now because things are going to happen. And I'm thinking in my mind, what's going to happen? Nothing's happening here. Um, and so the final of the three guys, this is the point where things get a bit hazy for me, but the point where there was everyone in the room, the lights were on and I was sitting up and I had all my clothes on and I had given no indication of having any interest in any of them in that way. Um, the next thing I know, the lights are off, my clothes are being taken off against my will I'm saying, stop, 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 don't do this, stop. And the guy, you know, grabs me and pushes me towards this other bedroom and I just managed to scoop up my things, God knows how, and he's just, like, pushed me towards the bed. And that's when my phone messaging went off and I went to go grab it. He was like, no, you're not touching that. And I, when I think about my memories of that night, like I'd been saving for months and on lay-by to buy these special items to wear out for this beautiful special night that we'd had planned, my cousin and I, and I'd only just picked them up like two days earlier. They were so far out of my normal budget, but I would really, really love these things. And, and it was such a day for you as well that you really were looking forward to as a part of, you know, your new life and stepping away from the perpetrator. And this particular halter top that I was wearing um, was something which would not be easy for someone to take off. And he wanted this off and he's like, look, things are going to, and I was saying, I don't want to take it off. It's like things will be a lot better for you if you take it off. And that's the when things progressed and he, he raped me and I blacked out at that point. Um, I know now that's just a natural response because I just went completely into, so I had the whole sort of spectrum. I was in that um, fight mode and then I went completely into freeze mode and I then, that blackout I think is definitely like so many sexual assault survivors is part of a protective thing my body did to me to get me through that moment. And so I, I came to in the morning and woke up um, feeling very confused 
And but knowing that I'd been violated, this is where the the fawning stage kicks in because I'm like, oh shit, I don't want to get this guy angry. I just need to get out of here. But I didn't know where the hell I was. Um, I just sort of had glimpses in my mind of the night before of different landmarks. And so he's like, oh, look, the address is on my phone. Now, this is how I knew he didn't normally live there because he's said, oh, look, I'm just crashing here tonight because um, I'm flying to um, New Zealand later today. And I'm like, oh, okay, okay. So if you look at this message, that's the address to tell the, the taxi. So, so I did and I left and got home and the first thought for me was I am so fucking pissed off with my perpetrator. Like in that moment, I couldn't even process the fact that I'd just been raped that night. I was just so angry that my ex had put me in a situation where I was so vulnerable to being in that circumstance and all I wanted to do that night was go home. I'm so sorry. This is like so harrowing to hear because. Yeah. Do you know what? I actually went to the police station at that moment and I couldn't even say to the police officer, and it was a female police officer there at Brunswick Police Station, what had just happened. I, I actually said, look, I'm being stalked and harassed by my ex partner. This is in the context of lots of abuse. I need to um, get an intervention order. How do I do that? And she just gave me some really vague information. And in my traumatised state, I just I don't think I really retained much of it, but it all just seemed like too much work. I mean, I, I reflect on that now also and go, here I am. I'm reporting actual crimes to you at the moment and you're not taking me in and taking a statement or asking, are you okay? Can we help you? Can we refer you to a service that will help you? Like, it just seems like you've been failed and failed and failed again. And when people ask why people don't go to the police and why don't people leave, this is why. This is right. And so it's important to, I think, in context of the story at this stage is to let um, people know that, I was actually in the Victoria Police recruiting process at that point and I had been for up to almost a year and I was really had my heart set on that as a career goal and to get into the sex offence and child abuse unit was my career goal in that moment. And yeah. um, this is another thing that the perpetrator knew that I had that goal and his statement to me when he found that out was, well, you better make sure you're the one that shoots first at me. Um, so it was his intention very strongly to kill me. Um, yeah. So here am I. And he's, by harassing you in this moment, that you've gone to this other house, you've just been assaulted, That it, it's a flow-on effect of abuse that people often don't think about. Like where the fuck else could you have gone? Like where else? There's nowhere else. Your family don't live in Melbourne. You don't have another house to go to. Yeah. Look, I mean, honestly, I, if <laughs> – given the fact that my um, brain was impaired by alcohol, not that that makes any difference whatsoever, but, no, you're not making um, the most 
um, clearly thought out decisions. I mean, there probably were places I could have gone to, but where I really wanted to go to was my own home to my own bed. And I didn't yeah. feel I could do that. And in, in the, the moment of things that were happening, it seemed like the safer option to walk with these three guys who didn't appear to be of any risk. Absolutely. And to be honest with you, I mean, like I've gone out, like not recently, obviously because of COVID, mm. but in the past, met some people or friends of friends and we've gone back as a group of a couple of people and sometimes it's been me as the only girl um, going back to these places and having a few drinks and then going home. Like that that shouldn't be something that we have to fear no. that, you know, and, you know, probably not the best decision as well, but at the same time it shouldn't have to be, you shouldn't have to be so protective of yourself at all times, like, that shouldn't be a state that we have to constantly live in. Well, as I said, you know, many years later when my VOCAT um, or Victims of Crime Assistance Tribunal, who for people who are not familiar with VOCAT, um, when I was at the final hearing, which was granted in my favour, but um, something I said to the magistrate was on that night I had a choice of going home and being bashed or potentially killed or leaving with people who had not caused me any harm and I didn't have any reason to suspect of that and ending up being in a situation where I was raped. It's sort of like being between a rock and a hard place. Um, Yeah. And so when I actually did report this, because in my mind, like so many people who've gone through sexual assault, my gut instinct was I did not want to report. I had read um, so much about what Um, victim survivors endure in the reporting process and going through court and so forth. And I knew that would be a really, really awful and difficult process. And you know as well that the perpetrator um, of the second offence is likely potentially out of the country. Yes. Um, And second to that, is just going to say that it was consensual and now that you're, and now you're regretting it kind of thing. Like, you know, in your head, it's a, yeah. It's a he said, she said thing. Oh, 100%. That, that was all that was going through my mind. I was blaming myself for being so careless. Um, I was like, honestly, in that moment, that next morning, I wasn't even directing my anger towards the rapist. My anger was completely centred on the perpetrator. Um, yeah. It was actually, so that was the Sunday morning and there was the Tuesday of that week that I was attending training um, for Why Women's Information, um, and this was in 2005, to because I'd got accepted to their um, phone support worker um, volunteer training program. And it was something that meant so much for me because in my quest to become a police officer, I thought I'll strengthen my application by um, by doing some volunteer work. And this is the organisation I chose and got accepted to um, be able to volunteer with, but you have to go through this extensive training. So it just serendipitously happened to be the week that Tuesday when at the CASA training, um, sorry, at the WIRE training, the CASA workers were coming in to deliver training to us about how to respond to people who had experienced sexual assault. Yes, and CASA, for those who don't know, is the Centre Against Sexual Assault. Yeah, so I was in this emotional turmoil leading up to this training session because the professional aspect of me was like, I really want to go, I really want to hear this information, it's really important to me. But 
I hadn't even disclosed to anyone at this stage about what had happened to me. I was finding hard to even admit it to myself. So I decided I would go, but I would just be really quiet and just listen and not interact so much and just absorb the information. That didn't end up being what happened though because on the day, and at that point, why I was located at my favourite building in, in Melbourne, the Queen Vic Women's Centre. Um, so we were up on the top floor there and the CASA workers say to the training group, right, stand up in a line against the wall and stand at this end um, if you would be okay with getting a call about sexual assault today and stand at the other end if you wouldn't. And... Um, <sighs> Here's me thinking at the time, I'm getting a bit anxious, but I'm thinking, okay, I can do this training exercise. I'll be all right. I'll be all right. But then the next bit, uh, that's what completely did me in because they started walking down the line and saying, well, why are you standing in where you are today? And I'd stood at the end of the line of not being okay with talking to someone about sexual assault at that moment. As soon as I saw that they were doing this technique, I just had to leave the room. I just broke down I was in absolute floods of tears and there was someone who was in because I went into the tea room and there was someone who was on their phone and she saw me and she's like what's going on I'm just like I I I can't be here today I was I thought I could be but I can't because I was raped on Saturday night um and I look back on this experience and even though honestly I don't think that particular training technique was the best and I hope that that's never been used in the future absolutely not yeah yeah I think it wasn't trauma informed at all um no. but for the specialists as well come on guys come on guys um <laughs> but in terms of a disclosure space it was such a safe space and I feel eternally grateful for that because that disclosure could have ended up coming out of me at any place like I was not planning on disclosing I wasn't ready to talk and it just came out of me and to be in a, a a building full of women's services, being in a room with the CASA trainers and the WIRE um, group, I, I just felt instantly safe and supported. Yeah. And what happened from there, then I was, they rang ahead to the um, the actual CASA building, which was located in that time in Carlton, opposite the old um, Women's Royal Women's Hospital. And my key concern in that moment was, I was actually in a lot of physical pain because um, particularly internally because of the injuries the rapist had caused me. And so I went up and um, I saw the um, the counsellor there and talked through what had happened and said, look, I just really want to get checked medically. And so we went over to the hospital and through all of this, like she wasn't putting any pressure on me to report to police, but I'm having that internal struggle. Like I'm actually wanting to be a police officer right now. And if I don't report, how can I encourage other people to do that? So yeah. I made the decision that I would. And so I went home and my cousin um, came over because she'd been a witness of that night um, to support me. And they came and you know, took away all the relevant clothes and like that for me in itself was extremely distressing because here's these clothes I'd spent months saving up for and I'd only just got to wear for one night and they're being taken away from me I know that just seems yet again a really materialistic thing 
No, it's not materialistic. I don't think in my mind at all. Like these are your things. These are your possessions. And these are something that you've got a hold over. Like you worked really hard for that. And that's really awful. Like, you know, this was touted to be something so much and you'd you'd really raised it in your mind to be this great night yeah. and, and it, it just turned so badly. And I mean, I can see an attachment to something like that, something so small to other people from the outside. But for you, that would have been a huge thing. Like this has just gone completely done a 180 from where I thought it was going to go. Yeah. And, and so after that gave my um, statement the next day at, um, uh, where was it at that stage where I went out to out at Broadmeadows? Um, and was this with the was this the socket team then or the soccer hour team? Yeah, that's correct. And it's interesting because I hadn't actually read back my statement for many years until I moved um, from Melbourne to Ballarat this year. And as I was moving, I actually found my my rape statement and. Reading it now is actually quite shocking in context of my advocacy work because I just see how obsessed to a point of ridiculousness they were with the the amount of drinks that had been consumed throughout the night. And it, it just it's like you're not getting the relevant points here. Like they were just skimming over certain things but just kept reinforcing um, the the amount of alcohol that had been consumed. It's very much setting up a victim-blaming sort of narrative there that, no, I created this um, situation of risk for myself. Um, yeah, and I think that's something that I really, I only recently in the last month read my my statement um, and my victim impact statement as well. And it was very much, you know, they had my um, toxicology in there, you know, my blood alcohol mm. level was 0.16 or something. Like I was very intoxicated, let's not get it mm wrong but at the same time what what I'd actually blocked out of my mind what I'd forgotten was that I believed that this was a planned attack I think that he planned to do this to me because he had made statements beforehand for example that were people had shown him pictures of me and he had said oh she's a sort she's all right she's really good looking or something me being a child of 14. That's gross. And then when I became incapacitated that night from the excessive alcohol that he was feeding primarily to me, um, the other two girls were allowed to leave. And pr- before that, they weren't. Like we were all had to stay there. So the moment I was incapacitated, the others were allowed to leave. So I really felt like, and I said that in my statement, but none of those things were actually in, sorry, I said that in my victim impact statement, but none of that information filtered through in any of the documents that I could find or that I have access to about the charges or anything. None of that contextual information, none of the, you know, the is it premeditated or not, none of that was in there. It was focused on my drinks and it was focused on just the assault itself. There was nothing else. And that really, really frustrated me too because they're not getting a whole picture they just determined this is an opportunistic offender. He doesn't pose much of a threat to threat to the rest of the public because of that. Um, therefore, we'll just put it down to that and we'll process this as, as it is. That That's like, yeah, I can't – that's really frustrating. It is. And, you know, uh, my rapist could be described as an opportunistic offender, but it was also part of what led me to report because I thought if he can do this to me – he could do this to anyone um, if this is the sort of behaviour that he, you know, takes advantage of people when they're under the influence of and can't exactly um, fight people off. So 
I just thought, no, I am can't change what's just happened to me, but I can play a part in ensuring that he doesn't do this to someone else. So, And what happened to those, sorry, to, yeah. to divert, those people, I don't even know if there's a charge for this, is, is there the people that knew exactly what he was going to do, um, those two other men, that would probably be aiding somebody to commit a criminal offence potentially, but did they ever get in any... No, that absolutely didn't. In fact, they went on to harass me after my VOCAT claim. So, yeah, um, what happened? It just makes you want to peel your skin off your face sometimes, doesn't it? You're just like, are you serious? So here's me, one step off getting into the police academy. I've had the rape happen on a Saturday night. I report it to the police on the Tuesday. I give my initial statement on the Wednesday because I live in Brunswick, I was told to go to um, Broadmeadows, but because the offence had occurred um, in South Bank in an apartment in that area, um, my case got handed off to a detective in Melbourne CIU. Um, and I'm going to openly name this individual because he deserves to be named. Uh, detective Adrian Phelan um, was the person who was the detective on my case. And Honestly, I don't know what hex I was under in my life to be assigned him because the way he dealt with my case was just absolutely revolting. So um, I openly disclosed to him that I was in the police recruiting process because I'm thinking, you know, potential future colleague here, no way to sort of break the ice and create a bit of rapport. Uh, yeah, you're creating the rapport as the victim reporting here. Yeah, and and so anyway... Um, not knowing what to expect in this process, but assuming I'll get taken into a room which is just me and him. No, he goes into a room which has just got um, lots of desks, lots of individuals coming in and out, um, no privacy, and he goes through my statement with me in that space. And I felt so humiliated and really upset, but because of the fact that you know, the power imbalance in this situation, I didn't feel like I could question it or say, can we go to a private space? Yeah, definitely. You know, you, and it's an authority. It's a police officer. Exactly. You're kind of scared of police as well. You know that they're there to help you, but it's super intimidating when a police officer comes up to you. Like, you know that moment where you're driving and you get pulled over and they're going to bring out the breathalyzer and you know you haven't drank for six days, but you still have that initial fear? Yeah, Absolutely. And so, yeah, that, there was that in intimidation of the authority there. And what then in that moment happened, I could see um, his demeanour shift towards me when he started going through my statement. And it came to the point of realising that I had consumed alcohol on that night. And I could just see his attitude completely shift. And I could see he just wasn't invested in this whatsoever. Um, and so he was reading through and the fact that I'd um, said that the perpetrator um, had told me that he was leaving on the day that he committed the offence to go to New Zealand. He's like, oh, we're going to find it really um, difficult to do anything about this. Um, oh, you, you don't even know where it happened. So I, I don't even know where to start, like, um, you know, investigating this. And I was sort of a bit taken aback about this sort of commentary, left there feeling quite confused, um, but then thinking, well, if he thinks this is going to be so hard to investigate, 
well, maybe I have to sort of try and piece some things together myself. So I actually went out and did some investigation. I was trying to remember the images in my mind of the things that I could recall from that night. And what was really clear to me was the um, bluestone wall of the um, army barracks at St Kilda Road and it being not on the St Kilda Road side but the the other side of it. So I knew that. So I, I drove my car down the back of there and I started to you know look at the different buildings until one was the one I recognised. And I remembered that we'd walked up a set of steps. So basically it was on the second floor um, and I knew exactly the point of the building where it was. So I, I rang back the detective and said, look, this is the building, this is the street, this is the floor. Is that enough information for you to actually do something about this? And he said, oh, well, maybe. <laughs> and where I thought the person had left on the Sunday to go overseas, as it turns out, he didn't actually leave until um, the Thursday. And so at this stage, they could have actually arrested him. Yeah, or at least interviewed him or gone to the scene of the crime to collect more evidence that potentially might not have been destroyed by then. Well, all those things, but none of those things happen. And so, as I know now, um, he was allowed to leave the country. They knew exactly who he was. In terms of even when he returned to Scotland, they knew his address in Scotland. There was no attempt done to interview him. They said it's just not going to be possible. And as I know now, there are situations when the police can arrange for interviews to be done with people overseas. Um, it wasn't like it's some third world country with no extradition. This was Scotland, for God's sake. So We're a part of the same Commonwealth. A hundred percent. And so that, for me, was a real feeling of failure there on their behalf. But the next thing in that sort of space of time that happened that really shook me to the core is what he did without my consent. So I had only disclosed the fact that I was in the police recruiting um, process because, like I said, it's like, you know, I'm excited about this career path. Um, he took it upon himself with no um, permission from me to go and advise the inspector of recruiting uh, that I'd been raped. Um so the next Monday, less than a week after I'd been assaulted, I receive um, a request to attend a meeting that week with the inspector of recruiting, basically a please explain type of meeting. I was deeply distressed by this um, because here's a career path I'd been putting so much time and effort into all the stages and I'd been passing everything and I go in and he was incredibly pompous um, and arrogant and he came out you know, with the statement like, oh, I have to make sure that you know, on behalf of all Victorians that I'm putting the best um, candidates forward. He goes, I don't know what to do about this situation and I'm sitting there thinking, hang on a second, that's not my responsibility. You go away and talk to who you need to talk to and find out how you should be responding to this, then speak to me. Um, and he's As like, if this would actually impact the public. Like I have a duty to the public. So I wonder if that flip happens for when somebody's been potentially charged with domestic violence and it, the charge has been dropped, therefore they don't have a criminal record. Does that get pulled up as well or is it just the people who get sexually assaulted? 
God knows. Like, but in this situation, I'm sitting there and he's saying to me, you know, I would have found out about this. And I said, that's absolutely fine. I said, I have every intention to have had this discussion. I said, I just wasn't anticipating I'd have to do this so soon after being assaulted. I just am still processing that. And then he came out with the comment that's just stuck in my mind ever since then. He says, like, well, it's not just like you've had your bins knocked over now, is it? Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to health care, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit UH1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. I am in, my mouth is open, my jaw is dropped. Um, I hope that he is no longer a police officer. I don't. Detective Adrian, what was it, Freeland? Freeland. Now, this was not the detective. This was the inspector who said that to me. Um, And then he said, look, I'm going to need to take some time to work out where to go with this. And as it it turned out, it took them six months to decide that I wouldn't be a liability to go forward with my application. But in the meantime there, um, my counsellor at CASA and I were discussing that if he didn't allow me to proceed, then I would pursue that to um, the Equal Opportunity and Human Rights Commission. Um, Yeah, definitely. My dad, um, who's just the fount of wisdom and knowledge and just sensibility, um, he made a comment to me that was, if they treat their recruits like that, why on earth would you want to work for them? And by this stage, um, I'd actually secured a role at Centrelink. So when they came back to me and said, look, you can proceed, I actually said, well, great, fantastic. I'm glad that's um, that you've come to that decision. But 
I've just started a new role and I just need some time to think about this. And I decided not to go um, forward with that career path because of that entire experience, um, which is really, really, no, at, no, looking back now, it was the best decision I could have made, but at the time was completely devastating for me because of the amount of effort. I'd, and also I had to step away from the wire training too because of the trauma that I'd gone through. I couldn't, like I only had a couple of weeks until I would have completed that course and um, got some um, education um, components completed that I could have been accredited for. So there was all this loss that happened to me from this one night. And so jumping forward to when I actually put in the VOCAT um, claim for compensation because I knew it was highly unlikely and it still hasn't happened um, that that you know, perpetrator hasn't returned back to Australia. And so I thought, look, it's, it's unlikely this is ever going to go through the criminal justice system pathway, but at least through victims of crime I can see if there's some way for them to acknowledge that this um, crime can be validated that this has happened to me. And as it turned out, um, they did come to that decision, but it took, when I lodged that in 2005, it took them through till 2008 to come to a final determination. And the reason it took so long was mostly because of Detective Adrian Phelan, because I was never provided with a copy of my statement. And it took me over 100 phone calls and emails of begging for him to provide me with a copy of my statement to give to my lawyer um, so that we could proceed with the case because that was a vital bit of information that was needed. So he continued stalling with that. On the day the final hearing was held, the other people who'd been in the apartment that night, so the friends who were complicit in all of this, they were there. I hadn't been informed that they would be there. I mean, I guess that's fairly self-explanatory that they would, but to not be actively told of a process that you've never experienced before and then to have these people that had been part of such an awful night just suddenly pop up was very confronting. Definitely, and I don't think that it would be an expectation that I would have that my perpetrator would be um, at this hearing or that the other people there would be. Like that wouldn't be something that I would expect. So I think that's a very warranted thing to be surprised by and you should have definitely been warned about that. Yeah, so um, I had my cousin yet again there as a support person on the day because she'd been a key witness of events of that night and had seen the rapist in the earlier part of the night and could yeah. be part of, you no know, describing. She could identify yeah, him. all of that sort of stuff. Um, yeah. At that point, though, she'd just recently given birth to a baby and so she was breastfeeding and so throughout the hearing she would have to duck out at certain points to breastfeed and after um, that hearing was finalised, she advised me when we went out um, for lunch to sort of debrief about everything. She's like, I need to let you know that when I went out to breastfeed that um, the detective was talking to the rapist's friends and he was actually telling them your contact information. Oh, my God. And that started later that day. I started getting hang-up phone calls again. And this has to be against the law. Oh, 100%. But in that moment in my life, because I, I was still thinking potentially I might want to um, 
have a career path in the Victoria Police and I didn't want to sort of do anything that's career limiting and making a complaint because making a complaint is potentially going to put a ceiling on opportunity. So here's all these things that he's done in terms of the statement, the going to the inspector of recruiting, the stalling on providing me my statement so it took so long for the hearing to be heard um, and all these things. And then on that day to create a situation where I'm at further risk. And all I wanted to do was to have that called out, but I didn't feel like I could because of the power imbalance yet again that was there. And so it took to the point where I had finally come to a resolution for myself that I wouldn't be pursuing a career um, in the police force. And also when I was a bit further along in my own healing and recovery journey and had had counselling and was a bit more settled in my life, that I actually was like, right, I need to address this because it's not okay. So I made an official complaint to the Office of Police Integrity about his behaviours. And to the credit of that particular office, they took it very seriously. But he effectively denied everything. And, you know, to him it was a complete surprise because apparently he'd never had any complaints made about him before. All right. I. You know, it's just it goes back to not to say that this person um, was a perpetrator himself, but it's that like narcissistic thing where they do all of these things and then you turn around and say something. They go, oh, me? Who? What? I'm so shocked. Like that? Uh, me? Never. There's never been a complaint against me in my life. And you go, shut up, idiot. Like it's just ridiculous. Like it's just that it's it's the boys' club. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's so. And I won't probably go into the whole of the second abusive relationship. So if you can think that, so from 2001 through to 2009, I was going through the abusive relationship, the stalking, the rape, the um, the all those sort of after period of what had happened to the rape and the vocat. So I get to 2009, I've just turned 30 this compensation money comes through um, and it was $10,000 that you get for the rape. But it took for me to get raped for um, the VOCAT psychologist to actually inform me that I would be eligible to claim under family violence. Now, in my mind at that point in my life, I wasn't actually considering myself a victim of crime for the family violence. This is how, no weird place that we get around family violence because of the the way that society has traditionally seen that as something that happens behind closed doors and luckily that narrative is now changing but it took actually for that psychologist to have that discussion with me and to go through that process with VOCAT to recognise that I had been a victim of crime in both of those instances but it shocked me that the disparity between the sexual assault, special financial assistance and the family violence, because given that the family violence had been for years, had affected me in multiple ways, um, was still in effect at that stage ongoing because I was still being stalked even at that point. And so all of the, the impacts of that, in a sense for me, were far greater than the rape because that was one night of my life, one really awful night that had a lot of sort of knock-on effects but ultimately the family violence was, in my case, so much worse. And I really couldn't understand where they'd come to the calculation of 
harm of one against the other. Um, and that was something that I later raised um, when I gave evidence to the Royal Commission into Family Violence and talked about that disparity and said, look, a violent crime is a violent crime is a violent crime and you're making a judgment call which actually is really offensive. And But in that time when that compensation came through after waiting for so many years to put sort of that behind me, um, I decided to um, book a trip across to Southeast Asia with my best friend so that we could go um, and volunteer teaching at a um, village outside of Siem Reap. And that for me, in terms of a karmic thing, I really looked at those, that money that I'd received was because of an incident I never wanted to have happen in my life and I wanted to change the energy around that money into something positive. So that's why it was really important for me to use that to give back. So that's what was happening. That was, And I'd got back, um, I was working full-time at Centrelink. I'd also been accepted into a Bachelor of Social Work um, at um, La Trobe University. I was doing well with that. I got it because I went into the advanced standing level of going straight to third year. I'd completed my third year placement in Ballarat. I got um, a rural um, placement scholarship that covered the cost and uh, oh, wow. all these all these things. I was kicking goals. So coming into 2010, I didn't have any debt. I you know, had this amazing trip with my best mate. I'd completed a You're turning a corner. Turning a corner. I've got money saved. And then I met second perpetrator. Um, and I won't go into all because I know we've been speaking for a while now, but <laughs> basically he was um, a person who was from Ireland. At the point I met him, he'd just come to the end of the period of his working holiday visa and was about to become of a non-valid visa status. I met him on New Year's Day. He moved in a week later um, and he stayed for six and a half years. And in that six and a half years, I endured every form of abuse, um, which included, I'd include visa abuse for me because of the fact that he wanted to get the permanent visa and the everything like that, but it was part of his also his psychological and emotional abuse towards me. So I've gone through sexual abuse, physical abuse, financial abuse, no, uh, verbal abuse, and although for him his physical abuse of me was nowhere as extreme as perpetrator number one, and I think in a sense probably that's why in one way I stayed with him longer, his verbal um, and psychological abuse was so much more damaging to me. Um, yeah. He was someone also like perpetrator one but to a greater extent he had a very complex relationship with drugs and alcohol and so whilst I'm not and I really want to qualify this for people the drugs and alcohol didn't cause him to be violent and abusive he could be like that when he was sober as well but when he drank or took drugs particularly the drinking um, it intensified and escalated things ridiculously yeah, definitely. And I think that's a misconception as well when people say things like, oh, um, he was a good guy, he didn't even drink kind of thing as if it would, you know, there's an expectation that somebody who does drink or take drugs is more likely, therefore, you're culpable or something. Um, it's just something that I hear a lot. And, and one thing I read actually recently, I can't remember what the book was, it was about personality disorders and, um, you know, 
people who are narcissists and psychopaths and things like that. And one thing I thought was really interesting was that psychopaths or a lot of psychopaths actually don't take any substances Mm -hmm. because they want to have complete control. So it's just something interesting um, that I came across when, when I think in terms of people pigeonholing people into, into um, typing somebody or, you know, the fact that this person has a complex relationship with alcohol and drugs and where our minds go when we think of that, we need to really start to reevaluate that. Oh, definitely. And yet again, that was the compassionate side of me kicking in because I, by this stage, worked in environments where I'd done my placement in a drug and alcohol withdrawal unit. I was working uh, at Centrelink, so dealing with people with from the whole range of issues that people approach Centrelink about. Um, and so I have that and I was studying social work. So the compassion for people going through different stuff. But yeah. f- for him, it was an intergenerational thing um, for God knows how many generations back in his family that alcoholism and abusive controlling behaviours, as I was later to find out, just went back. So um, as far as his behaviours towards me, not that yet again I don't excuse or justify it, but when I, in 2014, I had the opportunity to spend the most awful Christmas of my entire life over with his family, I got to see very much under the microscope what happens when intergenerational um, substance and alcohol abuse and family violence is in play. And Yeah, definitely. So what when I look at the environment I grew up in, um, the social norms that were really normal for him were not normal for me. My parents were not big drinkers. Um, no, there there was no abuse. All, but in the context of my second perpetrator, and also for my first too, because there were a lot of, in a way, they were very different, but they had quite a few similarities. Um, that the second perpetrator was from a, a small fishing village in um, Donegal, um, and the the um, cultural and I'm not saying it's an Irish thing, but I'm saying it's cultural to his family and friends, very tribal, the way that they accepted these behaviours as normal. So even when his family came out to visit me in the first year we were together and he was physically assaulting me when they were in the next room, the mum's response was, oh, boys will be boys. And the dad's response um, was, no, you're making this up, Um, you're crazy, um, oh, we should book an ex-fly home. I can't believe he's with you. Um, but, and now I know that the father was a very abusive to the mother as well. Yeah. Um, and so it's just, it, yeah, it, my mind just goes, it hits a point and I'm a very, very loud and opinionated yeah. woman. <laughs> but it hits a point sometimes where I actually just have no words because it's just, you know, it, it's hard to fathom that somebody would blame you for that. It is. But the, I think the key difference in the relationship with perpetrator two to perpetrator one is I was head over heels in love with this guy because aside from the fact he was causing me all this pain and distress, he also made me laugh every single day. He was yet again someone who love bombed me, um, who was so much fun to be around and no, he was the life of the party and everyone loved him. So yet again, I was painted as the the person with the problem because I didn't see that these behaviours of when he 
lost control over himself. Like he got to, most of us can go for a night out and we get to the end of that night and think, no, right, I'm ready to go home. For him, that wasn't enough. He'd have to go out for a three or four day bender. And, but if I had an issue with that, I'm the one who is the problem I'm being controlling and you're controlling. Yeah. Yeah. So this is the context in that relationship I was living in throughout that six and a half years. But at the same time, I just genuinely loved him to bits. And I was like that song, the old song from Hathaway, what is love? What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me no more. That that was what it was. I, I just wanted the the shit behaviour to stop. I didn't want the relationship to actually end. Um, And so the point that it did end, I was actually blindsided because I thought at that stage, you know, six and a half years in, that we'd sort of come to a point where we'd um, a lot of the behaviours that he had towards me had calmed down, that he'd addressed those. He was still sort of consuming a lot of alcohol, but he was being better than he had been. And in that final year that we were together like we're even talking about because he was six years younger than me and um so at this point I was 37 and I talked to him about well you know let's look to start a family um because he was saying he was ready at that stage and I'd waited and waited until you know it, it felt like it was the right time and so when he decided to walk out on me I had no idea that I was pregnant like we had discussed about trying. In fact, you know, a couple of weeks earlier he'd actually proposed to me. Um, oh, my gosh. But as I know now, um, at that point that he did that, he was having an affair. He'd already lined up somewhere else that he was going to move into with the person he was having the affair with. Um, the week before he walked out on me was my grandmother's funeral. He came to that funeral and he was talking to my family members about the future we were going to be having together, all the time knowing that he was going to be walking out a week later. Yeah, and all the time knowing that he's got a, he's leading a double life with another person that he's fully intentionally planning on moving moving out with. And and when the day that he did leave, like the literally the day before, he'd been telling me how much he loved me and everything. I had, I had no indication this was going to happen. I come home, I was doing a later shift at work, and he's sitting on the sofa. He packed up all his stuff into his work van, and he's like, "I'm leaving. Um, don't follow me." And I'm like, where the hell is this coming from? Um, uh, and then he's like left and he's then blocked me on everything. And like, you know, a couple of weeks earlier he's proposing to me. Like he's there's been no indication, like no fights in this particular period of time. Um, yeah. Now I know that he left and moved in with her. And But the complicating factor is that like a bit different to perpetrator one where that was in our 20s and you're not having so much financial commitments in this second relationship it was as far as I'm concerned in all intents and purposes a marriage because once you go through the partner visa and permanent residency process with someone and you're getting people to sign off documents verifying your relationship and everything you've gone through that it it, it feels like a marriage and so we had financial commitments together at this point like um there was a joint loan in our names of $50,000. There was another loan I had that was also as a result of stuff to do with him, but his name wasn't attached to that. So effectively I had about 70000 in debt 
which was largely as a result of his financial abuse towards me and his alcohol, gambling and drug addictions and um, his need to actually have a certain standard of lifestyle of going to, because we love our trance rave, so he wanted to be going to all the events and be eating at the, you know, the really expensive restaurants and having nights out at five-star hotels. And his coercive control of me was that thing of, well, if we don't do this thing, um, I'm going to walk out on you. Um, I'm going to leave you because, oh, no, if we don't have these sort of things in our life, well, that just makes you boring. And when you're completely in love with someone, you, all you want to do is please them. And I think, like, honestly, I could talk to you for days yes, I know. without stopping. But I think, like, this second relationship as well is so important to talk about and I don't want to skim over it. So I think um, let's have you on again if you'll if you're happy to come back. Yeah. And Let's take the time to talk through this second relationship as a separate episode because um, the things that you have said are so important. You know, we're talking about financial abuse. We're talking about coercive control. Um, and these are things that we need to deep dive more and we need to normalize more and we need to let people know what these kinds of crimes are because I think as well somebody might be being abused out there listening to this and not understanding what these things are. And I think a lot of times you don't, understand that you are being abused and until you hear the story of somebody that says what they've gone through and I think it's really important that we do highlight that so if you if you're happy to do that I reckon let's let's do another episode where you can tell us um the second story about absolutely shitbag yeah definitely and also what I really want to share with your listeners is that that the comeback is much greater than the setback and the life that I have now and the advocacy role that I play in various spaces has literally changed and saved my life over and over again. And this is what um, I definitely want to share with everyone who's listening in right now is that abuse and violence will not have to define your life. There is a life after abuse and there is so much support and help out there. Unfortunately, I wasn't always linked in with the supports at the time I need it, but now it's a part of very much the work that I do is ensuring that I'm continuing to advocate with organisations to improve their service responses and improve referral pathways um, so that no one has to experience what I've gone through because the thing I continually would think about and what led me into advocacy was like if I as someone who is in a situation of white privilege, I'm educated, I know systems, um, I'm working within systems and if I can find it so hard to get assistance and help how much harder is it for people who are facing any number of barriers um, such as having English as a second language um, living with a disability coming from um, an Indigenous background low literacy we could go on and on but ultimately um, it's really important that those of us who are in these advocacy roles ensure that we're making doorways open for those now you can hear my dog Zena in the background, so she's telling me wrap it up and come feed me. <laughs> <laughs> no, and I think it's exactly what you what you just said is so important for people to understand. I mean, it's not lost on me my experience um, and other people's experience that we are of 
I am of privilege. I'm um, from a middle class white family, and and if I can go through these things and have such barriers to things as well, then we need to really focus on on how to fix this because it shouldn't be this hard. And I and I can't thank you enough for the work that you do. I really want to say I'm I'm in absolute awe of you. I'm like a fangirl. <laughs> like every time that you post on LinkedIn and, and Instagram, I'm like sharing everything. Half of my friends have started to follow you. Oh, <laughs> oh that's lovely. <laughs> it's um it's great because it's it's advocacy and it's from it's not from a point of being angry. I mean, we're all angry inside, right? But it's from a point of education and there's so many things that we can educate people on and, and what the work you're doing is going to literally save people's lives and it's so important. One thing I actually want, if you can, um, can you describe VOCAT? I mean, I know we spoke about it, but I think VOCAT might be a really great resource to link in the show notes Yes, because you don't have to have a criminal conviction for VOCAT. If you are going through like a traditional criminal process um, uh, that um, – the level of evidence that has to be achieved to to get a conviction is not the same in in VOCAT. And I just want to make a note about like um, some changes that are happening in the VOCAT space. So, um, as I talked about earlier, um, I was I made a submission and I gave evidence to the Royal Commission into Family Violence, and my evidence was based on two key streams, one being about the experiences I've had within um, the general magistrate's court system as opposed to the specialist family violence court, which we haven't even discussed today, but that's in its own thing, a whole traumatic story. But then the second part I was focusing on what we discussed earlier about that disparity in my vocat experience between what happened for me as a rape survivor as opposed to the family violence survivor. So whereas the police had been really proactive about telling me that VOCAD existed um, and that I could make a claim, at no point in my family violence journey up until becoming a rape victim was I ever told that I could um, go through a claim process um, for VOCAT. And unfortunately, even though it's improved somewhat, it's still quite a lot the case today that family violence victim survivors are not proactively told that that's a pathway they can go down. So it's not only that there's um, what has been known in the past as special financial assistance that you get a lump sum of money um, that you can put towards things that can aid in your healing and recovery. But one thing for me which was incredibly helpful was the fact that you get funding to go to your own um, uh, psychological support of your choice. So um, unfortunately for many people, th- um, the cost of going to see a private psychologist is um, too expensive and, and there's a gap fee in a lot of cases. Um, most don't bulk bill, though some do. Um, but for people who've gone through family violence and sexual assault, you don't necessarily just need your run-of-the-mill psychologist that your GP is going to refer you to. You need a trauma specialist. And this is what enables you to be able to get the funding to go to someone who actually has that in-depth professional knowledge and to be do that with no gap fee. And so in a sense, yes, it was great to get some funding to um, do some things that I could achieve like I did with the trip to Southeast Asia to volunteer, that was, you know, very meaningful. But honestly, what helped in my healing and recovery so much more was access to those sessions. So 
Anyway, as a result of my um, evidence to the Royal Commission into Family Violence, two of the final recommendations were because of that evidence, Recommendation 104 and 106. Um, yes. So but 104 is about the need um, for healing um, and recovery um, responses to not to, for psychological supports to be funded on not just a point of crisis but on an ongoing basis for as long as someone needs it because I made the point that a lot of funding gets put into that crisis stage but for those in us in our healing and recovery journey we could be going through that for the rest of our lives. Definitely, yeah. And the second part, the 106, actually called for a complete review of the um, Victims of Crime Assistance Tribunal. That has now subsequently happened and been completed. So in 2018, the review of the Victims of Crime Assistance Act um, was tabled to Parliament and it had its own 100 recommendations that came about. This year I was appointed by um, the Minister for Victim um, Support, um, Natalie Hutchins, to the Victims of Crime Consultative Committee. And what's one of these just beautiful moments in my life out of all this adversity is that from me putting in this submission back in 2015, not even thinking about what would happen, I just needed to get these words out of me and done. I didn't even think about, oh, they'll call me potentially as a witness. That wasn't even in my mind. To see it go from getting that out, which was simultaneously one of the hardest but also one of the moments in my life that I'm most proud of getting up at the Royal Commission, but jumping forward to then the recommendations, the review, and now as part of um, what I do in my role as a victim representative on, as they call it, the VOC, um, Currently, right now, we're doing consultations on what's going to be the new iteration of VOCAT um, and victim response, which is actually going to be called the Financial Assistance Scheme or the FAS. And in terms of um, what that means for victim survivors going forward, is they're going to find a system that's a lot more trauma-informed, um, where they're encountering encountering a language that's a lot less legalistic so it's not that feeling of walking into an alien environment where um, your voice is um, you know it's like a whole other language um, really really alien um, it's going to um, be taken away predominantly from being in sort of a, like that court-like setting and um, there's there's so many changes I could go on and on we're in the process no but just to finalize with that that what I want to give victim survivors right now is hope, hope that things are improving because I can tell you from the inside of what's seeing what's happening right now is that the Department of Justice and Community Safety has listened. They have taken on board all the feedback they got from everyone who contributed to um, the review by the Victorian Law Reform Commission and they are taking action which is meaningful, lasting and will change people's lives for the better. And I can't thank you enough because this work that you are doing and, and you should be so proud of yourself as well because, you know, it, not only does it show that there is life after abuse, but what you are setting up is a system where people are going to be more okay and more supported with coming forward when something horrible has happened. So one thing I do want to say as well to anybody listening right now, and I know so many of my listeners have gone through their own experiences and have not come forward and gone to the police for for a variety of different reasons. 
obviously, if you have a, a, a convicted case in a criminal setting, that will be maybe potentially easier for VOCAT to to give you financial assistance. However, there does not have to have to be that. Um, you don't have to have had a court case. You don't have to have pressed charges. Um, you just have to go in there with your story and, um, you know, they will um, assist you the best way that they can. That doesn't mean that you're going to get financial assistance. That doesn't mean that there is enough evidence there to go through VOCAT. But what it does mean is that you don't have to have a conviction um, and that they will listen. And, and those financial services are so important in the recovery and healing even just taking off your plate, having to stress about money for a couple of months mm. is worth every penny so that you can focus on healing yourself. And I really want to, um, I'll link in all of that information um, so that anyone that wants to have a look into it can. And again, I just can't thank you enough, Kathy. You're an absolute powerhouse superstar warrior, warrior woman, and you have just you are breaking down all of these barriers, not only for other people, but you've overcome such adversity and you, you're just so determined and it's truly inspiring. Well, thank you so much. And I'm really honored to um, be on your podcast today. I, I just feel so much gratitude. And I also, I'm actually really feel so happy that I now can basically call you part of my tribe of warrior women because I think that's what we're forming is um, a tribe of like-minded people who are really committed to um, creating change in this space and um, not putting up with the status quo and that that's what uplifts me and keeps me moving forward because don't get me wrong, I still have really black days when I'm down. I still suffer quite seriously from depression and PTSD and anxiety, but it's my advocacy work and my tribe of warrior women and some men, I must admit, um, that this is what and no, allows me to actually not just fall in a heap and no, um, and and not do anything with my life. This is my purpose. This is the become part of my DNA. This um, advocacy, and it's become more than just something I do as a hobby. It's 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 become my calling in in my life. Yeah, I really really feel that, and I feel the the same way. I have a such a strong passion for lifting other women up and giving them the chance. Not just women, anybody to give them the chance to speak, to give them the chance to have their autonomy. It's leading by example in my mind and I don't want to ever take credit for anything in my mind. It's just by giving somebody a platform, by removing a barrier in any place so that somebody can can take that first step so that they can go through whatever they want to go through. Um, I think that's really important. It's not, it's not so much for me as... Um, you know, the advocacy work is where it really comes down to, as opposed to, I was talking to somebody the other day and they were creating this process. And I guess it kind of came across to me as a bit of like an MLM. Mm. Um, I can't and it MLMs. Was, <laughs> no, same. And I was like, well, this, you're not really empowering people to think for themselves. You're not empowering people to, um, to live their own life. You're not empowering, um, you know, anybody to come forward or breaking down barriers, what you're doing is monetizing this. And you're exploiting um, people. 
Yeah. <laughs> so I really want to. It's no. This and it is. It's such a great space, and I, I wish that I had met um, yourself and Jenna, um, who we episode um, interviewed on episode two, um, and so many other people that I've met through this experience. Mm. Um, it's creating a community, and I wish I had this when I was at the worst stage with people who understood but at the same time that's why this needs to get out there if you are going through it now you have a network and you can connect with me um, on LinkedIn you can connect with me on Instagram um, and Facebook and I'll link all of those um, places as well more than welcome to reach out and connect with me too happy with that and and it's not as a professional resource. We are not here. We are not trained psychologists. We can't do that, but we are here as a really, really um, friendly ear, um, somebody who might be able to put you in the right direction, connect you with services, but also as somebody who genuinely understands what trauma feels like and, and can connect you with a community of people who will fucking believe you. A hundred percent that. And so my final uh, message to those listening is don't feel alone. You are not alone. There is so much support and help out there for you. Um, make sure to check out the resources um, that are going to be accompanying this podcast um, and, you know, just do things at the right time for you. Um, but don't stay silent. Speak out to someone um, and you'll be embraced by support. Yeah. Because empowered people empower other people. So that is what we are going to do. We're giving everybody massive virtual hugs. And I can't wait to meet you in person, Kathy, and give you a big real hug. Oh, definitely. Um, because I, I, yeah, again, I just, um, I can't thank you enough. And it's, it's truly been an honor to listen to your story. Oh, thank you. And um, I really look forward to seeing how your podcast series um, progresses because it's been absolutely amazing, the two episodes so far that I've listened to. Um, And I just think you're creating such an important and vital resource and space for people to share their stories in such an amazing way. And it's being victim survivor led, which I think is great. It's not being led by someone in the media or, you know, a a sector thing um, that they're inviting a victim survivor in you're creating this from a victim survivor lens so I really love that because there's no um, power imbalance Um, we're very much in a situation of equality in this discussion yeah this content may have been distressing or triggering for Um, some listeners in Australia for national crisis support please contact lifeline on 131114 for more resources please see the show notes for this episode Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, 
a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.